Harper Audio presents The Spider Network The wild story of a math genius, a gang of backstabbing bankers, and one of the greatest scams in financial history by David Enrich Performed by Mike Chamberlain Prologue The small ski resort town, nestled in the mountains outside the city of Karuizawa, was a popular destination for day trips for Japanese families. Bustling during the day, it was mostly quiet this Saturday night. Clouds cloaked the moon. A chartered bus pulled up outside a bar, its windows aglow. A light snow was falling. Out into the peaceful evening stumbled dozens of rowdy bankers, some toting tall cans of Asahi and Kirin. Most of them were drunk. They quickly took over the small bar. The drinkers were employees of the American Bank Citigroup, one of the world's largest and most troubled financial institutions. A year earlier, at the beginning of 2009, American taxpayers had finished pumping a staggering $45 billion into Citigroup to bail out the collapsing behemoth. Now the transfused recipient was treating dozens of its investment banking employees to a weekend getaway. The bankers were housed nearby in a sprawling luxury hotel, each employee's room designed in Japan's typical spare style. These festivities weren't so Spartan. The point was to foster camaraderie, and that was happening in spades. The party had begun on the hundred-mile ride on the bullet train out from Tokyo. After a day of hitting the slopes, Citigroup ferried the bankers to a bowling alley where they drank and bowled and drank some more. Their bus had then deposited the intoxicated crew at this bar before leaving the partiers behind to fend for themselves. One of the fiesta's ringleaders was a wiry, curly-haired American named Chris Checkeray. You wouldn't know it from his behavior now, but he was one of the sharpest people in Tokyo's cutthroat financial markets. A foul-mouthed veteran of the doomed Wall Street firm Lehman Brothers, Chekarei had only worked in Japan for a year or so, but he had quickly assembled a team of rock star traders. His mandate was to push the already risk-hungry Citigroup into brave new financial frontiers. That wasn't all Chekarei was pushing. This snowy night, he was practically pouring shots down the throat of his subordinate, a disheveled British 30-year-old named Tom Hayes. Slim and nearly six feet tall, Hayes was a brilliant mathematician, one of the most prolific, aggressive traders in Tokyo, if not the world. As with Chekarei, he didn't look or act the part. Bespoke suits and expensive shoes were found nowhere in his wardrobe. Specks of dandruff dusted his shoulders. He was far happier with a glass of orange juice or a mug of hot chocolate than a pint of beer, a preference that once earned him the nickname Tommy Chocolate. Hayes found social situations uncomfortable to the point of painful, this one included. Before departing for the ski weekend, he had grumbled to his fiancée that he didn't want to go. She told him he didn't have a choice. Hayes's life revolved around work, and Citigroup was his new family. He had only started there a couple of months earlier, and it was important that he make a good impression on his colleagues. So far, he was off to a promising start in that regard.
His new bosses bathed him in praise, introducing him around Citigroup's global organization as their newest trophy asset. Only hours before they showed up at the bar, a top Citigroup executive, Brian McCappen, had described Hayes as a star who represented the future of the firm's enormous business in Tokyo. McCappen proclaimed that their division would further shift its trading approach to take advantage of their new hire's extraordinary talent. Hayes was certainly being paid like a star. After years of feeling like he was getting stiffed by six-figure payouts at his former employer, the Swiss bank UBS, he had pocketed a roughly $3 million cash signing bonus when he joined Citigroup. McCappen, the CEO of Citigroup's investment bank in Japan, came along to the bar that night, along with Chekaray and Hayes. A native of the gritty English city of Birmingham, McCappen was tall with a chubby, dimpled face. A talented singer at 13, he and a friend had formed a band called Deadline that sometimes performed at a pub frequented by workers, including McCappen's father, emptying out of a nearby Rolls-Royce plant. After Deadline split, some of its members went on, years later, to form Ocean Color Scene, which briefly rose to fame touring with Oasis. By then, McCappen had moved on to other things, but that didn't stop him from occasionally claiming that he'd been a founding member of the infinitely more familiar band. At the time Hayes arrived at Citigroup, the main outlet for McCappen's stymied musical ambitions was karaoke and he was a frequent and enthusiastic practitioner. As McCappen belted out tunes this night, Hayes grudgingly accepted shot after shot of Jägermeister from Chekaray. He struggled to swallow the sweet herbal concoction, fighting an increasingly powerful gag reflex. But he kept throwing the shots back, unwilling or unable to withstand Chekaray's schoolboy pressure. Hayes didn't want to disappoint his boss. The earlier part of the day had been easier. Hayes was an expert skier who embraced risk as eagerly on a black diamond trail as he did on a frenzied trading floor, and he thrived in the deep powder of the Karuizawa Resort. Now, though, beads of sweat started tingling on his scalp. The room began to spin. Hayes staggered to the bathroom and vomited. Then he rejoined the party. Three years later, in January 2013, I was sitting on a sofa in my cramped apartment in London's Clarkenwell neighborhood. Centuries earlier, the area had been the stomping ground of knights who were about to embark on crusades to the Holy Land. In a nod to that history, the narrow alleyway that my wife and I shared with a Belgian beer hall was named Jerusalem Passage. The neighborhood had been repopulated by trendy design studios, sushi bars, and art galleries. It was just after 8 p.m. when my iPhone buzzed with a text message from a number I didn't recognize. I'll meet you tomorrow, but I need to be certain I can trust you, the text read. This goes much, much higher than me, and a lot of what I know, even the DOJ, Justice Department, is in the dark. The message was from a terrified and very sober Tom Hayes. Less than two months before Hayes contacted me, the Attorney General of the United States had stood at a lectern in Washington, D.C., 
and announced criminal fraud charges against Hayes, branding him as a greedy, deceitful traitor who had ripped off countless innocent victims in order to enrich himself. Here, the planet's most powerful cop declared, was the mastermind of a sprawling, multi-billion dollar scam. Spread out across time zones and continents, a group of bankers, brokers, and traders had tried to skew interest rates that served not only as the foundation of trillions of dollars of loans, but also as an essential vertebrae of the financial system itself. It all boiled down to something called LIBOR, an acronym for the London Interbank Offered Rate. It's often known as the world's most important number. Financial instruments all over the globe, a volume so awesome, well into the tens of trillions of dollars that it is hard to accurately quantify, hinge on tiny movements in LIBOR. In the United States, the interest rates on most variable rate mortgages are based on LIBOR. So are many auto loans, student loans, credit card loans, and on and on. Almost anything that doesn't have a fixed interest rate. The amounts that big companies pay on multi-billion dollar loans are often determined by LIBOR. Trillions of dollars of exotic-sounding instruments, called derivatives, are linked to the ubiquitous rate, and they have the ability to touch virtually everyone. Pension funds, university endowments, cities and towns, small businesses, and giant companies all use them to speculate on or protect themselves against swings in interest rates. If you bought this book with a credit card, you quite possibly brought LIBOR into it. So, too, if you drove to the bookstore in a car not yet paid off, or if you're carrying a mortgage or student loans, or if your town borrowed money to pave its roads, or if you work for a company that issues debt. So if something was wrong with LIBOR, the pool of potential victims would be vast. As it turned out, something wasn't wrong with LIBOR, Everything was. Hayes didn't come up with the idea of manipulating LIBOR to turbocharge his profits. But during the course of his career, he took the practice to fantastic new heights, oblivious to or uninterested in the fact that he was engaging in unethical activity with the real potential to harm unsuspecting victims. That initially helped catapult the nerdy trader into the upper echelon of the most profitable industry on earth. By the time I met him, it had thrust him into the crosshairs of regulators and prosecutors on three continents who were yearning to find someone to hold accountable for the mass destruction that the banking industry recently had inflicted on Western economies. I had spent nearly a decade writing about banks and their misadventures for the Wall Street Journal and other publications. But this was a misadventure like none other. On the surface, it wasn't the most eye-catching scandal, which is the very reason it was so easy to pull off. The conspirators were fiddling on the margins with something that few people paid much attention to. But the stakes were so high that even small-scale tinkering had the capacity to spawn fat profits to the tune of tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, with commensurate losses afflicting the often unsophisticated victims. But the hunt to nab Hayes and his confederates, a group that one participant dubbed the Spider Network, exposed far more than a scheme to manipulate the underpinnings of modern banking. I began to see the saga as rooted in a corrupt, 
broken financial system, as well as the minimalist, see-no-evil regulatory infrastructure that theoretically was supposed to keep the industry in check. Hayes's moral compass certainly was skewed, perhaps in part due to the mild case of autism he was eventually diagnosed with, which helped explain his incompetence at human relations and his affinity for numbers over people. But just about everyone I encountered suffered from a version of the same defect, obsessed with numbers and profits, eager to use other people as tools for self-advancement, convinced that anyone on the losing end wasn't so much a victim as a sucker who deserved whatever mistreatment he got. And the more I dug, the more it seemed that, at least in some ways, Hayes himself was that sucker, the hapless guy positioned to take the fall for an entire industry's era of anarchic, reckless behavior. His odyssey, as well as the institutions and individuals that goaded him along, reveals a lot about why the banking industry has become synonymous with scandal, and why, even today, its awful reputation remains firmly intact. Part 1 The Scam Chapter 1 Watching the Coronation The Brackenbury Primary School, in the dumpy West London neighborhood of Shepherd's Bush, was in a three-story red-brick Victorian-era building. From outside, the school looked grand. Inside, it was a different matter. High ceilings created a cavernous, intimidating vibe. Paint was peeling from the walls, and cold air drafted in through ragged insulation. The small campus, just down the street from the Goldhawk Road Underground Station, was in a part of London marked by tracks of similar-looking, century-old houses and down-on-their-luck convenience stores, pubs, and laundromats. Brackenbury's student body, drawn from the surrounding neighborhoods, was primarily working class. In 1990, one of the school's students was Tom Hayes. The ten-year-old was big for his age, with a mop of sandy blonde hair and small dark eyes. He was burning with anger. It was hard to pinpoint the exact reason. His parents had split up six years ago after his mother, Sandy, caught his father, Nick, cheating. Hayes detested Nick's absence from his life. Nor was he thrilled that upon his father's remarrying in 1989, Tom and his younger brother, Robin, had inherited two stepsisters from Nick's new wife, as well as a baby half-sister. But Nick wasn't the only issue. Hayes resented what he saw as Sandy's cold, controlling nature and the fact that she seemed more devoted to her job than to mothering her two sons. Money was tight. Once, before his parents divorced, angry debt collectors showed up at their small, two-floor brick house in Shepherd's Bush after Nick, a ponytailed television journalist, fell behind on the utility bills. Hayes told himself that when he grew up, he'd make enough to ensure that the bailiffs never returned. Every day, he counted his money, which he had earned doing odd jobs around the neighborhood. He stacked the coins by denomination. He memorized the quantities. The rituals made him feel safe. He started carting around all his essential belongings in his backpack, as if ready to flee if the need suddenly arrived. 
Sandy worked as a researcher for Gordon Brown, a jowly Scottish politician in Britain's Labour Party. She toiled long hours, delegating child-rearing duties to a series of au pairs. Hayes perceived her as anxious, angry, and strict. Among her rules, Hayes was only allowed to drink water. To say their relationship was contentious would have been an understatement. Once, in a fit of rage, she hurled a hot-baked potato at Hayes. After another fight, Hayes locked his mother in the cellar. Another time, he flung a saucepan at her head. He threw violent tantrums. Sandy was not his only target. He once assaulted his stepbrother, who came along with Sandy's new husband, Tim, with a pool cue. The au pairs couldn't cope, she would later tell a psychiatrist. Hayes was desperate to win his mother's favor. The only way to do that, as far as he could tell, was to excel at school, so that's what he set out to do. By the time he was six, he was already emerging as a standout math pupil. Once, he badgered Sandy to buy him a math workbook as a gift. Tom is a mature and sensitive boy who gets emotionally upset at times due to family problems, a teacher wrote in a 1987 review that was sent to his parents. His anger and frustration, and particularly his aggressive will to win, have frequently got him into trouble in the playground and with his peers, though he has calmed down recently. As confident as Hayes was when it came to math, that's how dysfunctional he was interacting with his peers, especially girls. He could hardly work up the guts to talk to them. He kept track of his number of friends at any given time. He rarely counted more than three and almost never saw them outside of school. Part of the problem might have been his demeanor. Endlessly teased for his attire, Brackenbury didn't have a strict dress code, but Hayes nonetheless routinely showed up wearing a blazer. He won a dubious award from his peers for Best Uniform of the Year. Tom can sometimes come across as arrogant about his abilities, a teacher wrote in 1992. He should appreciate the value of diplomacy, his English teacher said on another occasion. Hayes acknowledged the problem. I need to improve my attitude in that I respect ideas I disagree with, he wrote in a self-assessment. Buffeted by strife at home and unpopular at school, it wasn't surprising that Hayes sought refuge in things he could easily understand. From his bedroom window, he could see the floodlights over Loftus Road, the stadium that was home to the Queen's Park Rangers professional soccer team. When QPR scored, Hayes could hear the crowd roar. The sport became a lifelong passion, and for years he attended every home and road game that the Rangers played. He saw QPR as a second family and Hayes became obsessed with collecting things. He stockpiled used train tickets. He built a vast army of metal toy soldiers. He amassed dozens and dozens of soccer stickers, which he arranged in particular orders. His purest love, though, was mathematics. He cherished the simplicity, the objectivity of numbers. They never lied, they never disappointed you, unlike so many people in his life. You couldn't misinterpret numbers, a valuable quality for a literal-minded boy like Hayes. Equations were beautiful, not to mention reliable. Marriages could fail, friends could fight, girls could ignore you, 
and QPR could and often did lose. But the square root of nine was always three. The angles of a triangle always added up to 180 degrees. That fed a budding interest in finance. It was partly because Hayes had an intuitive understanding for numbers. He wasn't scared of them the way many kids were. Another factor was his paternal grandfather. Raymond Hayes had been a stockbroker for an old firm, Mullins and Company, in the city of London, as the capital's financial district is known. Raymond's nickname at work had been Talky because he was such a blabbermouth, and he loved gabbing to his attentive grandson. Raymond trained Hayes to read the tiny newspaper columns of daily stock price movements, instructing him to search for patterns, and he entertained Hayes with colorful stories. Some of which might have been apocryphal about his days of traipsing into the city wearing a shiny black top hat. A favorite tale involved Queen Elizabeth II's coronation in 1953. Raymond wanted to watch the ceremony, but he didn't own a TV or have the money to buy one. He told his boss, who advised him to buy shares of a specific company. Raymond bought the shares. They immediately rallied. The next day, he unloaded the shares, pocketing enough money to buy his TV and watch the coronation. Insider trading didn't become a crime in England until 1985. During Raymond's heyday, the practice was rife. Decades later, a watercolor painting of the ornate Mullins headquarters would hang in Hayes's living room, a gift from Raymond before he died in 2000. Just as Hayes was getting into a groove at school, Sandy and Tim, a management consultant, decided it was time to escape dirty urban living in favor of Winchester, a town in the English countryside best known for its medieval cathedral. Hayes was fifteen. The hardest part wasn't moving away from his few friends; it was his newspaper route. He earned twenty pounds, roughly forty dollars a week, and it was easy money. His route consisted of a single luxury apartment building. He barely had to venture outside. At his new school, Hayes remained an academic star. Tom is a talented mathematician, his annual assessment said. Newspaper delivery no longer an option. He sought out other means of pulling in some cash. At lunchtime, his classmates were always desperate for a little extra money to buy more food, generally a supplemental portion of dessert. It was a ripe opportunity for someone to make a nice profit. Hayes realized, so he skipped eating, and instead loaned out his lunch money to classmates. He charged usurious fifty percent daily interest rates. In other words, someone who borrowed five dollars would owe seven dollars and fifty cents the next day. Hayes reckoned he had to charge so much because his borrowers tended to default at an alarming rate. The venture was profitable. Keeping Hayes flush with pocket money. Other money-making opportunities beckoned. British high school students tend to hang out in pubs. Once, sitting in a Winchester watering hole, his friend David Brown noticed Hayes staring at a row of slot machines. Brown thought Hayes was just zoned out. He wasn't. The slot machines had signs on them advertising how often they paid out. For example. That an average of one in ten wagers would be a winner. Hayes was watching people robotically feed coins into the machines, 
and calculating which machine was due to deliver the next jackpot. Then he would put his money in. The tactic worked. Hayes didn't plan to build a life around math. Though his interest in finance remained, he realized that his argumentative streak could be enjoyably put to use and decided that he wanted to be a lawyer. In college, preferably at Oxford University, he hoped to major in history and then pursue postgraduate legal studies. But his interview with an Oxford admissions officer went poorly. Given his outstanding academic performance, the point of the interview was more social than scholarly. But Hayes had developed a deep aversion to eye contact, finding it easier to concentrate if he fixed his gaze on an inanimate object rather than a human face. The resulting conversation was labored. The admissions officer tried to let Hayes down gently, telling him he just wouldn't enjoy himself at Oxford. British code for him not seeming like the right stock. Hayes was stunned. It was the first time he'd failed for what he assumed were academic reasons. So it was that an 18-year-old Hayes ended up at the University of Nottingham. Nottingham wasn't especially strong in history, but it boasted excellent math and engineering departments. Falling back on his acknowledged strengths, Hayes abandoned the social sciences to become an expert in partial differential equations, advanced calculus, and fluid mechanics. Freed from his mother's disciplined home, Hayes had a strict 9.30 p.m. bedtime until he left for Nottingham. He went a bit wild, vigorously transitioning from water to much harder stuff. At 3 a.m. one night, Hayes was belting out QPR soccer anthems in his dorm. A professor was awoken and nearly had him kicked out. Still, by the rambunctious standards of most college kids, Hayes seemed normal, more or less. And, for perhaps the first time in his life, he was happy. By then, Sandy's career, attached to that of Gordon Brown, was soaring. Brown had become Chancellor of the Exchequer, the British equivalent of the U.S. Treasury Secretary, and the second most powerful post behind the Prime Minister in Tony Blair's Labour government. It wasn't Hayes's only connection to the British establishment. Sandy's sister was married to a Bank of England official named Chris Salmon, whose career also would soon take off. After Hayes's first year in college, Brown told Sandy that her son could have a summer job working in the Treasury. She turned down the offer on Hayes's behalf, without asking him. Sandy felt her son was too conservative to fit into Blair and Brown's center-left government. She described Hayes to acquaintances as a Thatcherite, a reference to the 1980s conservative Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Coming from Sandy, the label was derogatory. It's hard to imagine how Hayes' life might have ended up differently if he had gotten that summer job. Working in finance in a powerful government department under the watchful eye of his mother and a supportive boss might have opened up a world of different possibilities for someone with prodigy-like math skills. Hayes didn't even learn of the job offer until years later. Instead, he spent that summer and the next working behind the bar at the Winchester Tennis and Squash Club near where Sandy and Tim lived. Footnote. Hayes's boss at the club gave him good marks, but the teenager did exhibit some odd behavior. 
Once, instructed to gather stray tennis balls, Hayes collected roughly 150 balls and squirreled them away at his home. End footnote. He worked 80 hours a week, earning about 3 pounds 75 pence an hour for a weekly haul of 300 pounds. Not bad for a summer job. But he chafed as patrons condescended and belittled him, regarding Hayes as lower class, even though his family was a member of the club. Come the end of the summer, he could hardly wait to return to school. One day in the fall of 1999, Hayes was in the computer lab at the University of Nottingham when he overheard two older students talking about internships they planned to apply for in the London offices of the Swiss bank UBS. The internships paid about £500 a week, though what they actually entailed was a bit unclear to Hayes. They involved something about operations. That sounded sufficiently vague that Hayes figured he probably could do it, whatever it was. He didn't know much about investment banking, aside from vague notions he'd picked up from his grandfather's stories, but the money sounded great. That December, he showed up for an interview at UBS's London offices. He was running a high fever, felt awful, and didn't think he performed well. He figured he was heading for a repeat of the Oxford rejection. But a few days later, UBS offered him a summer job. The pay was even better than Hayes had expected. 600 pounds a week, or on track to be 27,000 pounds a year. That was more than most adults in Britain earned at the time, and double what he'd earned the prior summer for what he guessed would be less strenuous, more rewarding work. Back to London he would go. The internship ran from July to September. Hayes rented a place in London and commuted into UBS's offices, right around the corner from the old Mullins building where his top-hatted grandfather once worked. In fact, S.G. Warburg, which had been purchased by UBS, had itself purchased Mullins in the 1980s. Hayes found the job boring. He worked behind the scenes, helping UBS manage its technology and computerized trading systems. At the end of the summer, the bank offered him a permanent job. It wasn't even conditioned on Hayes graduating. That's how much they wanted him. But in his few months at UBS, Hayes had learned about the investment banking pecking order. Back office roles, such as the one he'd been offered, were close to the bottom. At or near the top were traders. For most people, the notion of a trader is based largely on movies depicting Wall Street's wild ethos. Bellicose traders, their sleeves rolled up, shout profanities into multiple phone lines simultaneously, while gawking at a half-dozen computer screens and, in their spare time, abusing subordinates, harassing the few women in their midst, and casually cheating anyone they can. The caricature isn't too far from the truth, but it doesn't explain what a trader actually does. In fact, there were different types of traders, Hayes learned that summer. One common variety was called a market maker. A market maker's defining trait was that he fielded queries from other banks, asset managers, hedge funds, insurance companies, and other institutions that wanted to buy or sell financial products in the market maker's area of specialization say, Mexican government bonds. 
If a trader at a hedge fund called up and said he wanted to sell $10 million of those bonds, the market maker's job, as an expert in Mexican bonds, was to quickly assess the characteristics of the proposed transaction and then offer the hedge fund a price at which he would be willing to execute the transaction. To be good at the job, the market maker needed a hearty appetite for risk, because if he agreed to do the deal, he then became the proud owner of those Mexican bonds. Sometimes that would be only for a period of a few minutes before he sold them to another trader at a different institution, but other times it could be much longer. When someone else came along looking to buy Mexican bonds, the market maker would try to eke out a profit by selling the bonds for at least slightly more than he had paid for them. As long as he was holding on to the securities, the market maker also needed to make sure that the bonds weren't vulnerable to big swings in value. One way to accomplish that was to buy instruments whose values were likely to move in the opposite direction of the original Mexican bonds, such as a type of insurance contract that gained in value as the risk of the Mexican bonds defaulting rose. That tactic of protecting himself through offsetting positions was known as hedging. It was similar to a diehard Red Sox fan placing a bet that the Yankees would beat his team in the playoffs. That way, even if the fan's heart was broken, he would at least win a little money as a consolation prize. Pulling off profitable transactions on behalf of clients wasn't the only way that traders made money. They also were expected to place their own separate bets on the direction of markets and to amass positions so that they profited if their bets turned out to be correct. This was fundamentally different from market making, but market makers were among those plying this type of trade in addition to their main jobs. By the time Hayes arrived on the scene, this had become standard operating procedure but it represented a seismic shift in the traditional role played by a bank. No longer was the bank serving mainly as an intermediary whose trading was designed to lubricate the financial system or assist clients in managing their finances. This type of trading was an end in itself, designed to benefit nobody other than the bank and its employees. There were many reasons for this transformation. One was that regulators in the United States, Britain, and elsewhere, lulled by the lack of a recent financial crisis and swayed by the industry's enormous political clout, had taken a hands-off approach to overseeing this sort of speculative activity. In the United States, a law imposed in the wake of the Great Depression that prohibited commercial banks from partaking in investment banking activity was repealed, paving the way for the creation of megabanks like Citigroup whose trillion-dollar balance sheets allowed the placement of massive wagers with the banks or, more precisely, its investors and customers' own money. Another factor was that, over the past couple of decades, many old Wall Street partnerships, firms like Goldman Sachs, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and Morgan Stanley, which had been owned by a small group of their uppermost, longest-serving employees, had converted into publicly traded companies. That allowed the firm's partners to cash in on their ownership stakes, catapulting some of them to near-billionaire status. But it also meant that the companies became accountable to a new class of owners, many of whom demanded to see profits grow quarter after quarter 
year after year. Unleashing their traders to roll the dice more aggressively was one way for the Wall Street bankers to achieve that, assuming, of course, that their bets paid off. Whatever the causes of the shift, it didn't take long for traders, often paid a portion of the profits they generated, to rise to the top of the banking totem pole to churn out ever greater profits and the occasional catastrophic loss for their institutions, and, with a little help from Hollywood, to capture the public's imagination. Footnote. Trading profits and losses aren't zero-sum among banks. In many cases, non-bank institutions are on the opposite side of a bank's trade, meaning that for every winning trade, there doesn't need to be an offsetting loser at another bank. End footnote. And the interests of a trader whose performance was measured based on how much he helped clients versus one who was rewarded based on how much money he raked in through his own trading, well, they were very different. So were the interests of a bank that mainly focused on its clients' needs and one that profited in large part from trading that was divorced from, and sometimes diametrically opposed to, what its customers wanted. The art of making money through this so-called proprietary trading was partly in the timing. Bet on something that's cheaply priced, protect yourself with an offsetting position, get rid of the original asset just as it reaches its peak value, extricate yourself from the offsetting hedge position, and pocket the proceeds. In the ideal scenario, savvy traders managed to construct enough overlapping hedges that they virtually eliminated any downside risk and guaranteed themselves a small profit, regardless of which way markets moved. Traders with advanced math skills, able to swiftly calculate and recalculate the ever-changing odds of a wide range of bets, and to craft computer programs to identify opportunities for profits, enjoyed an enormous advantage. And you didn't need to win consistently. Billionaire Ken Griffin once said, that he expected the stock market bets of his employees at hedge fund Citadel to pay off just 52% of the time. The great news for the trader was that, if his positions gained in value, he would share in the spoils. And if his bets didn't pan out, the worst-case scenario was that he lost his job. That rarely happened, and, when it did, it tended to be pretty easy to find a new gig without having to explain much about the reasons for his sudden departure from the prior job. As a result, traders were basically in a no-lose situation. Hayes cannily accepted the UBS operations gig, but when he returned to Nottingham in the fall, he started applying for trading jobs at other banks, the Royal Bank of Scotland, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Deutsche Bank. He landed interviews everywhere other than at Goldman. When the Scottish bank offered him an entry-level position as part of the bank's training program, he accepted and informed UBS that he no longer wanted the back-office assignment. Hayes told his mother about his newfound career ambitions. She was opposed in principle to the idea of her son working for an investment bank and spent hours trying to talk him out of it. Hayes's father wasn't thrilled either. Hayes shrugged off their concerns. He was hardly alone in being tempted by the potential riches of a career in finance. All over the Western world, promising students, especially those with math and engineering backgrounds, 
were flocking to banks, seduced by the chance to put their technical skills to use in creative ways, while hauling in fat paychecks. The shift accelerated amid the moribund U.S. economy of the early 1990s, when aspiring engineers realized that jobs in their hoped-for fields, such as aerospace, weren't nearly as plentiful or remunerative as they had expected. At Caltech, one of the country's premier engineering schools, banks were showing up in droves at campus job fairs. The bottom line is, it pays really well. A Caltech engineering major, headed for a bond trading job at investment bank Solomon Brothers, explained to the Los Angeles Times in 1993. It didn't matter that much of what the industry was doing served little purpose beyond enriching itself. Larry Summers, the Treasury Secretary in the Clinton administration, noted that starting in the 1970s, the finance industry was transformed from a field that was dominated by people who were good at meeting clients at the 19th hole to people who were good at solving very difficult mathematical problems that were involved in pricing derivative securities. One of Hayes's classmates at the University of Nottingham was a young man named Kweku Aduboli. The Ghana-born son of a United Nations peacekeeping official, Aduboli grew up in the Middle East and then England. At Nottingham, he majored in computer science. Afterward, he got a summer internship at UBS and then was offered a full-time operations job. Unfortunately for both men, their lives would continue to follow parallel trajectories. After graduating from Nottingham in July 2001 with honors in math and engineering, Hayes flew to the United States. It was his second trip there, following a 1998 visit to South Carolina to visit his father's relatives. This time, he had stops in Miami and New York City before heading to Washington, D.C. His uncle, Chris Salmon, had been sent on a temporary assignment by the Bank of England to work at the International Monetary Fund, just down Pennsylvania Avenue from the White House. Hayes wasn't terribly close to Salmon, but they had shared interests in economics and finance. And Hayes spent the brief visit talking with him about how he envisioned building a career as a bank trader. Hayes started at the Royal Bank of Scotland that fall. RBS's office was on the bustling eastern edge of the city, just across a busy street from the Bishopsgate police station. Hayes's starting salary was about £35,000, along with an expected £15,000 bonus, a substantial take for someone just out of university. Hayes was in a training program that sent its aspiring millionaires cycling through various trading desks to get a taste of the different flavors of the bank's businesses. Hayes spent most of his time doing menial tasks. There was a lot of data entry. He learned to use Microsoft Excel, whose spreadsheets served as the backbone for many of RBS's trading models. He also scurried around doing personal favors for established traders. He got their keys cut, fetched their coffee, delivered their clothes to the dry cleaner, purchased gifts for their parents and girlfriends. Hayes, like plenty of grunts on trading desks, endured merciless mockery. One subject of harassment was his clothes. He still dressed too well. He wore a jacket and tie to work, while most colleagues opted for a business casual look of slacks and a light-colored button-down. 
One trader threatened to cut off his necktie if he wore it again. There were no classes where wannabe traders were taught the ropes. They were supposed to learn through osmosis by watching veterans do their jobs. And the lessons Hayes picked up were similar to those absorbed by a generation of traders across Wall Street and the City of London. Make money at all costs. Traders' performances were evaluated based on two factors, their ability to manage risks and their ability to maximize revenue. There were really no other criteria. Traders were encouraged to go the extra mile to wring out extra profits, trained like bloodhounds to sniff out that edge. It could be in the form of unique information or unique relationships with huge clients or unique access to naive and gullible customers or a unique way to massage indexes or benchmarks to make trades more profitable. Whatever the edge was, you had to find one. The way you dressed, the way you behaved, those might make you a target for teasing, but they were irrelevant when it came to how much you got paid. And that was the ultimate yardstick of success. When it came to obeying the rules, the only check was the bank's legal and compliance department, which was supposed to make sure employees knew the rules, statutory, not moral, that they had to follow. That department, a sort of internal affairs bureau, wasn't exactly a force to be reckoned with. During compliance training sessions at RBS, traders hunched over their blackberries playing the addictive brick-breaker game. The goal was to knock out each layer of tiles, brick by brick, the high score, the only measure that mattered. Chapter 2. The Hall of Mirrors Mohammed Riza Pahlavi needed cash. In fact, he needed $80 million of it. Two years earlier, in October 1967, dressed in full military regalia and wielding a scepter, Pahlavi had anointed himself Iran's Shah Anshah, or King of Kings. He would henceforth be known as the Shah for short. His coronation ceremony was held at Tehran's mosaic and mirror-covered Golestan Palace. The Shah marked the occasion, which also happened to be his 48th birthday, by donning a large, jewel-encrusted crown over his graying hair. He also placed a sparkling platinum crown on the bowed head of his third wife, Empress Farah. His golden throne glittered with 26,733 jewels. I feel closer than ever before to my noble and patriotic people, he declared to his subjects. The Shah had inherited the title from his father, Riza. Riza, Shah the Great, as he liked to be called, was a military general who deposed the previous ruling dynasty and changed the country's name to Iran from Persia. After taking over from his father, Shah Pahlavi briefly lost power when a democratically elected government, Iran's first, came to power in the early 1950s. That government, led by Socialist Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh, nationalized Iran's vast petroleum industry. Believing his politics smacked of communism, in 1953, the CIA orchestrated a coup and reestablished the Shah's supremacy. If that wasn't enough to leave the Shah in the West's debt, 
the massive amount of American military and economic aid pouring into his country surely did the trick. Now the Shah was looking for an $80 million loan to finance a new government agency. To facilitate the deal, one of the Shah's emissaries got in touch with a tall, mouse-faced man named Minos Zombanakis. Born in 1926 in a poor town on the Greek island of Crete, Zombanakis endured the German occupation of his country during World War II, and then, without a college diploma, worked his way up through the Greek banking system, including a stint at the Central Bank. As a 29-year-old, he showed up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and talked his way into a Harvard University graduate program, where one of his classmates was Henry Kissinger. Afterward, he returned to banking, working in Rome and the Middle East, fostering connections in Iran before settling in London with his wife and son. By the 1960s, he had emerged as a pillar of the city's banking industry, someone with a reputation for innovating and taking risks. In 1969, when the Shah was seeking the loan, Zombanakis had just opened the London outpost of Manufacturers Hanover, a large New York bank that would later become part of the J.P. Morgan Chase empire. The $80 million that the Shah wanted was too much for one bank to just fork over, even if the would-be borrower happened to be a government leader backed by a superpower. So Zombanakis lined up a couple dozen Western and Middle Eastern lenders to make the loan as a group. Now the question became what interest rate to charge the Shah. This was the type of problem that was increasingly vexing London's banking industry. The city, whose labyrinth of narrow, windy streets largely dated back to Roman times nearly two millennia ago, had always played a leading role in global finance, thanks to London's status as an imperial capital. But globalization was accelerating the transcontinental flow of cash and cementing London's role as a global financial crossroads. As business boomed, bankers like Zombanakis came up with creative ways to meet customers' diverse financial needs and, in the process, to make a lot of money for themselves. One invention was the use of a group of banks, known as a syndicate, to jointly make loans. That had the advantage not only of reducing the amount that any individual bank had to kick in, but also of sidestepping rules that capped the amount of risk that banks were allowed to take with individual clients. Normally, a big loan would carry a fixed interest rate, one that didn't change at all over the life of the loan. That had the benefit of simplicity, but it left the banks vulnerable to changes in prevailing market interest rates in the years before the loan was repaid. If, for example, a central bank had set its base interest rates at 3%, the banks might charge their customer a fixed 5% interest rate for the duration of the loan. That would be enough for the banks to pocket a tidy sum. Even if the central bank then hiked interest rates to 4%, the banks would still manage at least a small profit. But if rates rose further still, their profits would be wiped out. If the loan was small, the loss was small too. But when the amount was massive, and that's what the Shah was looking for, well, that was different. One way to address the risk would be to have the interest rate that the banks charged fluctuate in tandem with base interest rates, 
That seemed easy enough. After all, central banks generally adjusted their rates only on occasion. But in London's increasingly busy financial markets, that still left the banks exposed to changing market conditions. Most banks financed themselves by borrowing money from a variety of sources, including short-term loans from rival banks, part of the financial merry-go-round that kept the banking world spinning. These interest rates that the banks charged each other fluctuated much more frequently. The changes tended to be small, but even minuscule moves could have big impacts when applied to multi-million dollar loans. Zombanakis came up with a novel idea. What if the banks that were part of the Shah's loan syndicate regularly reported what it cost them to borrow money? Those figures could be averaged out, and every few months, the interest rate on the Shah's loan could be adjusted to reflect the changes in the bank's average funding costs. That would insulate individual banks from the risks of a loan becoming unprofitable due to changes in interest rates. Of course, the banks would tack on a bit of a supplemental charge above their funding costs to ensure that the loan was even more lucrative. Zombanakis convinced the other banks it was worth a try. This sort of rate-setting mechanism had never been tried before. As a result, the Shah got his money, a bunch of banks profited from sizable interest payments, and Zombanakis got credit for what the economist at the time praised as a very cunning new financing arrangement. In manufacturers' Hanover's newly opened London offices, the bankers celebrated the milestone with flutes of champagne and trays of Iranian caviar. Zombanakis and his colleagues couldn't have imagined it at the time, but their brainchild would soon become a crucial piece of the world's financial plumbing an interest rate woven into countless financial contracts. On the trading floor at RBS, Hayes noticed that it wasn't the biggest clients who elicited enthusiastic laughter and applause when they called. Instead, it was small pension funds and other unsophisticated investors, so-called dumb money. They lacked access to high-quality financial data, and generally weren't as sensitive to tiny differences in the prices that banks would offer them. In other words, they were ripe for being duped, and RBS traders fought to get access to them. Shouting matches on the trading floor over who had the right to the clients were routine. Nobody thought about it in moral terms. It was just part of the game, just the way things worked. Get your TV and watch the coronation. Years later, as Wall Street scandals piled up, one trader after another who cut his teeth at the same time as Hayes would offer a similar description of the era's amoral culture. I remember that if I voiced an opinion based on moral considerations, I'd get looked at as if I were an alien, a former investment banker explained to Dutch journalist Joris Laundak. Hayes's promise quickly became evident. He breezed through a series of regulatory and trade group exams in late 2001 and early 2002, earning him the right to work in jobs where he interacted with clients. Because those jobs entailed responsibility for looking after clients' finances, 
They were subject to extra doses of supervision from bank compliance departments and financial regulators, or at least that was the idea. In reality, London was in the midst of a revolutionary free market experiment. The city was selling itself as something of a regulation-free zone, especially compared to its chief competitor, New York, in a bid to attract banks and other financial institutions. The laissez-faire approach was christened light touch. The United Kingdom's understaffed Financial Services Authority only had a small handful of employees assigned to oversee some of the world's biggest banks and was mocked by a satirical magazine as the fundamentally supine authority. Sandy Hayes' boss, Gordon Brown, would become one of the idea's loudest cheerleaders. Not just a light touch, but a limited touch, he would declare in a 2005 speech. The approach, Brown said, helps move us a million miles away from the old assumption, the assumption since the first legislation of Victorian times, that business, unregulated, will invariably act irresponsibly. The better view is that businesses want to act responsibly. Reputation with customers and investors is more important to behavior than regulation. And transparency, backed up by the light touch, can be more effective than the heavy hand. It would turn out to be a disastrous misreading of capitalism. One of Hayes' peers in his training program had been a young woman named Sarah Ainsworth. She was a pretty brunette with a nice smile, pronounced cheeks, and a controlling personality. Like Hayes, who still couldn't seem to make eye contact, Ainsworth was not only brainy, but also a bit odd. The pair hit it off, became friends, and eventually started dating. Hayes forged other friendships through his job. On a rotation through one of RBS's trading departments, he sat next to a veteran named Brent Davies. A tall, hulking man with a mane of wild, blondish hair, Davies was 11 years older than Hayes. At age 20, he had joined the banking industry, working as a clerk at a bank that one day would be folded into RBS. He slowly clawed his way up through the ranks and became a trader. By the time Hayes arrived, Davies had been there 13 years. Davies liked the bright, quirky young man and took him under his enormous wing. He would buy Hayes beers after work if he'd endured a tough day. When Hayes and Ainsworth had problems, which was often, he listened and sometimes dispensed advice. Hayes embraced Davies as a father figure. Of course, traitors being traitors, Davies teased Hayes about the fact that his mother still cut his hair and that he was still sleeping under a duvet cover decorated with superheroes. He suggested that his mentee read The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime a novel whose autistic main character reminded Davies of Hayes. Behind his back, Davies nicknamed him Kid Asperger. Other colleagues christened him Rain Man. Notwithstanding the sometimes nasty edge of Davies' ribbing, Hayes always smiled, seeming not to notice. Hayes soon landed a permanent gig among a fast-growing cluster of RBS traders who specialized in products called derivatives. Derivatives came in many flavors, but they all shared a common characteristic. They were instruments whose values derived from something else. What you were buying or selling was not the thing itself, 
widgets, bushels, gold bars, but something related to that thing, maybe its future value, or how it compared to something totally different. If you wanted to buy ten gold bars, that was straightforward. If you wanted to place a bet that nine months from now, the price difference between ten gold bars and fifty bushels of wheat would be twice the difference between five bushels of wheat and sixteen widgets, then you were playing with derivatives. Derivatives had been around in various forms for a very long time. In the twelfth century, English merchants at medieval fairs signed contracts guaranteeing to deliver their wares at a set price at a future date, a primitive type of futures contract. Five hundred years later, Japanese feudal lords used a similar practice to lock in rice prices to protect themselves from bad weather or war. The famous Dutch tulip bubble largely involved the frenzied trading of options to buy or sell the bulbs, a precursor to modern-day stock options, rather than transactions involving the actual flowers. Derivatives really exploded in popularity in the 1970s, in large part due to unprecedented volatility that hit financial markets. Oil prices ricocheted up and down. Governments delinked their currencies from the gold standard. Causing exchange rates to swing wildly, rapid inflation spurred central banks to jack up interest rates. Companies and individuals needed ways to protect their fortunes from these new risks, and banks and brokerages were there to help, peddling a growing array of derivatives. A company that offered hot air balloon rides might purchase derivatives whose value rose the more rainy days there were in a season. Thereby shielding the company from the adverse effects of bad weather, the banks or other companies that sold those instruments would charge a fee, and then would try to balance out their positions by offering the opposite positions, say a derivative whose value climbed based on the number of sunny days, to other customers, such as umbrella manufacturers. Boiled down to their essence. Derivatives were designed to help people or institutions protect themselves from future circumstances. And no matter the sunshine or the clouds, one party in the transaction always came out ahead. That was the bank that, for a fee, engineered the derivative. Derivatives were uniquely suited for speculation, because traders could dabble without actually having to own a product. Someone who bought or sold pork belly futures, for example, was unlikely to actually own now or ever any actual pig parts. But future swings in the price of pork bellies might be a good gauge of expectations about the weather, or a harvest, or a disease's severity, or just basic macroeconomic trends. And so investors might buy or sell pork belly futures to get a piece of that action. The increasing popularity of derivatives as a speculative vehicle unnerved many experts. After the 1987 market crash, a White House report blamed derivatives for worsening the crisis by intensifying the snowball-like nature of panicked selling. In April 1994, derivatives landed on the cover of Time under the headline "Risky Business on Wall Street." The magazine's cover illustration was of an evil-looking nerd staring at a computer screen, and in 1998, the chaotic collapse of the giant 
derivatives investing hedge fund long-term capital management, run by mathematicians and Nobel Prize-winning economists, further underscored the instrument's risks. Every time there's been a fire, these guys, derivative traders, have been around it, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady noted in response. But derivatives were not going anywhere. IBM had a problem. The company, with operations all over the world, had issued debt to finance its European businesses in Swiss francs and German marks. But IBM preferred to have all its debts denominated in American dollars. Otherwise, its finances were tethered to volatile and unpredictable international exchange rates. In 1981, IBM turned to Solomon Brothers for help. The Wall Street firm approached the World Bank, one of the leading issuers of debt anywhere, and an entity with a tolerance for bonds denominated in a variety of currencies, and convinced it to sell a slug of bonds that were identical to the IBM debt except for one crucial difference. They were in dollars. Then IBM and the World Bank simply swapped responsibility for making interest payments and eventually repaying the principal on their respective bonds. It was the birth of a new financial derivative, the swap. Derivatives tied specifically to interest rates became common as Hayes came of age in the banking industry. Say that ABC Corp. borrowed $100 from First National Bank. The loan had a floating interest rate tethered to the Federal Reserve's base rate, which currently stood at 2%. Footnote. The Fed's base rate, or federal funds rate, represents how much banks charge each other to borrow money that's on deposit at the Fed. It serves as the basis for the interest rates that banks charge to lend that money out to their customers. End footnote. That carried risks. If the Fed subsequently hiked rates, ABC Corp. would see its interest payments shoot higher. So investment banks concocted a derivative product known as an interest rate swap that would help protect ABC Corp. from the possibility of being burned. ABC Corp. and Giant Bank would enter into a derivative contract that simulated a pair of similar $100 loan transactions. First, ABC Corp. would agree to borrow $100 from Giant Bank with a fixed 2% rate. Then, Giant Bank would agree to borrow $100 from ABC Corp. with a floating rate tied to the Fed's base rate or another metric. At the end of the loan period, whichever party, ABC Corp. or Giant Bank, owed more money on their side of the contract, would pay the other party. The $100, called the derivative's notional amount, wouldn't change hands. Under this construction, ABC Corp. would stand to make money on the swap if the floating rates jumped above 2%, which would make up for the higher interest rates it would owe First National on the original loan. If floating rates declined, ABC Corp. would owe money to Giant Bank, but that would be offset by its savings from the declining rates on the First National loan. In other words, the derivative neutralized the interest rate risks ABC Corp. faced in its original loan. Got it? 
Providing interest rate swaps was a valuable service, involving not only complex calculations, but also the assumption of large risks, and banks charged their clients handsomely. If that setup sounds terrifyingly complicated, keep in mind that like so many instruments in the Hall of Mirrors that is modern finance, there might not even be an ABC Corp. The swaps were simply another vehicle with which banks could bet on the future direction of interest rates. That meant a particular interest rate, and this is where LIBOR would eventually come into the equation, could have massive effects when it came to a bank's bottom line. If it moved in an advantageous direction, a particular swap could become extremely lucrative. By 2010, some $1.28 trillion of these interest rate swaps would change hands on a daily basis, up from $63 billion 15 years earlier. As always, the advantage went to the trader who found an edge, whether that edge was a gullible client, a superior product, a more sophisticated computer model, whatever. Sometimes the edge was simply pushing the envelope just a little bit further than anyone else. Hayes landed in a subgroup of the interest rate team that specialized in products derived from Japanese rates. At first, one of his main tasks was to rewrite the computer models that RBS used to figure out how much its derivatives were worth. It was a monstrously complex task. Hayes needed to come up with intricate models to predict not only the future direction of Japanese interest rates, but also the prices of a variety of instruments that were underpinned by those interest rates, as well as their likely interactions with interest rates elsewhere in the world. The process was made all the more grueling by the archaic state of RBS's computer and software systems. In 2002, Hayes was handed partial responsibility for a small segment of his team's trading. Under his boss's supervision, he was allowed to start buying and selling limited quantities of low-risk derivatives tied to Japanese rates. Hayes had arrived. He was a trader near the top of the Wall Street food chain. But it was an unglamorous assignment. He was squeezed on RBS's teeming trading floor, surrounded by row after row of loud, cocky colleagues with only a stack of computer monitors to act as a buffer between the awkward young man and his rowdy deskmates. The real problem, though, was that the Bank of Japan had kept interest rates at zero for nearly 10 years, trying in vain to resuscitate the country's moribund economy, a period that would come to be known as Japan's lost decade. With interest rates flatlined, the derivatives Hayes was responsible for were pretty dull. Another downside, he needed to be at his desk for a large portion of the period each day that Japanese financial markets were open. That meant arriving at RBS's offices as early as 4 a.m., which in turn meant going to bed by 7.30 p.m. Unlike most traders, Hayes was far from social, and so he didn't mind the early bedtime. In the summer, he loved strolling through the city's ancient, deserted streets as pre-dawn daylight emerged over 17th-century church steeples and 20th-century skyscrapers. But during the winter, the sun didn't rise until after 8 a.m. Then, having to drag himself out of bed at 3 a.m. was torture. 
Because many of the clients looking to buy or sell Japanese derivatives were based in Japan, Hayes got to travel to Tokyo. One trip happened to overlap with a visit by Fred Goodwin, RBS's hard charging CEO. Goodwin was staying at the luxurious Four Seasons. Hayes was in a crummy hotel down the street from RBS's offices. Misreading the cues, Hayes ribbed the CEO about his posh digs and jokingly complained that he wasn't permitted to stay there. The attempt at humor fell flat with the ill tempered Goodwin. RBS had a small office in Tokyo, and most of its trading business involved proprietary trading, in which traders made large bets simply using the bank's money. There was no ancillary business of making markets for or otherwise helping clients. Goodwin was introduced to a group of traders. He looked at each of them, asking what they did for the bank. Prop trading came the proud response. The CEO looked queasy. After all, what business did a Scottish bank really have employing high stakes gamblers on the opposite side of the globe? Years later, Hayes would recall that Goodwin appeared to be a bit nervous that there was some Nick Leeson waiting in the wings in Tokyo. Leeson was the Singapore based trader whose unauthorized, money losing gambles caused the 1995 collapse of Barings Bank. Would have been the United Kingdom's oldest investment house. But Goodwin wanted growth. That meant taking risks by the company and by its legions of ambitious young traders. And Goodwin would get what he wanted.